Welcome to Bevel, the podcast extension of Canadian Interiors, the longest-running interior design magazine in Canada, published since 1964. I am host and editor-in-chief, Peter Sobchak. Bevel is a place where we step away from the photographs and talk with industry leaders and thinkers about interesting ideas and issues facing the design world today. As the nature of designing and making physical objects continues to evolve, particularly products for workplaces, the way we approach that work needs to evolve with it. This sentiment was expressed by industrial designer Lee Fletcher earlier this spring while he was announcing the launch of his new venture called Fletcher Scott Studio, based in Toronto. Lee is a founding partner in Fig40, a product design studio also based in Toronto and in which he is still actively involved with partner Terence Woodside. But with Fletcher Scott Studio, he is, in his own words, quote, looking for a pause in process and an expansion of the liminal space between a design brief being given and the design work beginning. How can we point the juggernaut of development in a better direction, one that reworks the way we make things so we can keep making them? End quote. Lee's extensive experience in both manufacturing and consulting has enabled him to take the lead in reconciling all the goals for a given project and the complex, sometimes conflicting needs of clients, users, and the community. As a result, his work has won many international design awards and he has sat on various juries for design competitions. In this episode of Bevel, I sit down in a rather noisy environment with Lee to explore what he is trying to do with Fletcher Scott Studio. In his own words, his goal is, quote, to draw other voices into the process, to make the process more transparent while remaining unwavering on the goals to be achieved, end quote. He admits this will increase time, but not necessarily cost, and more importantly, will bring greater clarity to the goals and a higher chance they'll be met. He and I speak at length about how this will require a shift in approach and also about, quote, dismantling expectations, end quote, into constituent parts and then resembling them like Lego into something that works better for everyone, designer included. We unpack the sometimes thorny topic of authorship, and we even talk a bit about how task chairs were essentially over-designed for people who ended up barely using them. Lee was educated in both Canada and the UK, achieving an MA in industrial design from Manchester Metropolitan University. His work centers on designing manufactured objects with empathy and using an approach that seeks to understand the broader context the object is made and used in. He is a professional member of the Association of Industrial Designers of Ontario and teaches industrial design at Sheridan College in Toronto. Okay, Lee, it is great to have you on the show today. It's always a pleasure to get together and chat with you. Um, before we get too deep into the, uh, the, the larger thought-generated part of the conversation, let's just sort of, for our listeners and readers, do some sort of backstory, a little bit of backstory. So uh, you've been, you and uh, Terrence Woodside started Fig40 how long ago? Uh, 15 years ago, maybe. 15 yeah. years ago. So I've been a fan of what you guys have been doing since I got into this well, industry, um, and I'm not the only one. You guys have, through Fig40, you've been racking up quite a few awards, and deservedly mm-hmm. so. You've been doing really interesting stuff, uh, mostly in the contract side of things, but just overall, really, really interesting stuff. So, you know, I've always been, like I said, a fan of, of what you've, uh, what, what kind of ideas you've put forward in the product side of things, and then. Not so long ago, um, you started a new venture, uh, Fletcher Scott Studio. And the reason I want to talk with you today is because when you made that launch, you said something on uh, LinkedIn that caught my eye. Mm -hmm. You said, and I'll quote, as the nature of designing and making physical objects, particularly products for workplaces, continues to evolve, the way we approach that work needs to evolve with it. So what caught my eye about that post is the, you bring up a sort of an interesting angle here about um, essentially sort of this whole return to work mm-hmm. and how products fit into this return to work yeah. issue. So this is obviously a big issue that is dominating a lot of the narrative. Sure. I am, 
you know, swimming through waist deep river <laughs> of trying to wrap my head around, figure out this whole return to work narrative. And uh, what caught my eye about what you said is you drew attention to the objects of the workspace. Right. And I think that is something that gets overlooked a lot. Hmm. Um, and so that's sort of where I wanted to start, uh, or at least one of the things I wanted to talk about. But the reason that caught my eye, and then also more to our uh, longer conversations, is that you know you you're, you're with Fletcher Scott, you're taking a step back from the more um, from a more defined definition of product design. So I wanted to start off with that. What was the impetus to starting Fletcher Scott? What is it? What is it you're trying to do with that with that new venture? Um, that's a great question, and um, I think what I had found over the past number of years uh, in developing products is that um, it was becoming harder and harder to differentiate one thing from another. When you get a, a specific design brief for a specific thing, um, it, it 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 can be we're often not given a lot of latitude to explore certain things. It's generally up, up, up to our own uh, volition to go and look for uh, broader inputs. And the client often isn't super interested in that. They're just interested in, in something new, for, or sometimes for its own sake, sometimes. Um, and I just I got a little... Um, I just I wanted to explore a little more about what it meant to do this thing, whatever it was that we were going to do. And I mean, it's been simmering for a while. And I found with the projects that we were doing, I was certainly drawn toward not so much what we're going to design, but why are we going to design it? And it was that background work that set the terms of reference and, and kind of framed up the design work that was of much greater interest to me. Uh, and Fig40 is very focused on the, uh, the seeing something through from a design through to something manufactured, which is terrific. I'm very pragmatic. So, so whatever I'm doing, I'm going to be looking at the actual, it's got to be reasonable and it's got to be manufacturable and it's got to, um, it, it's got to be viable financially from a manufacturing perspective, all those things. Um, but it was the, I often talk about the juggernaut of development. So whether you've got a great design or not, it doesn't matter what it is. When it comes to uh, manufacturing preparedness, tooling cost and investment, marketing cost and investment, those things are usually quite consistent, regardless of what came before it and what kind of product you're putting through that system. And I've always been really fascinated with making sure you point that juggernaut in the right direction. And so what I wanted to do, I felt like it was partly during COVID as well and sort of a step back and a reflection. And I thought that there's a place and something certainly where my heart and my interest is, is in trying to dig into how do we, how do, how do we work to better understand what the product can be before we dive right into the solutions? I mean, it's every designer's natural impetus. You get posed with an idea for something, you're immediately scratching things down and you're noodling things in your head looking for solutions, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, right? That's just the natural sort of nature of things. But I'm finding that you, it's a little bit, you're putting the cart before the horse. And I think we, what I've found is that we can miss opportunities that might be there in a project, but you dive in, you get so far down the process and those opportunities can't be really taken advantage of because the juggernaut's in motion, right? So I wanted to find ways in which we can step back a little bit and maybe think about this a little more clearly. And all through, I mean, what's interesting is that this is the kind of thing I've read about a lot. A lot of people, marketing people talk about this kind of thing, product positioning. It's, it's kind of all tied up in product marketing and those kinds of things. But I find that if we can do that from a product design perspective with an eye on manufacturing down the road, um, the exploration might be a little different. Um, and maybe a little more uh, pertinent to the design work rather than something that is marketing driven which may be divorced a little bit from the pragmatic nature of the realities you'll have to live with down the road. Um, and so that was really the, the, the start. And I'm really at the very beginning. I don't know exactly what sort of shape this is going to take. I've got a, new, a few projects starting um, and just exploring what these uh, steps will be and how it'll evolve. But there's interest in it, which is interesting. So, I mean... It sounds like what you're starting to grab by, you know, the grab, grab by the ears and shake to see what comes out of the skull is the, the idea of 
really taking a hard look at process. Yes. Now, designers are all about process. Yep. Um, product designers are about a certain type of process. Not all the processes that designers go through overlap, but mm -hmm. process is a, is a powerful issue. It sounds like what you're starting to do is when you say things like you want to take a step back and look what happens between here to here to here, A yeah. to B to C. And, you know, th again, I'm just sort of reacting to what I'm hearing. But mm. it sounds like what you want to do is you see A and B and you want to look at the space between A and B. That's right. So even though the process might be A, B, C all the way to J, yeah. you want to take a big step back in the very beginning part and look at the void between exactly void is a loaded word but it look, is, look, yeah. look at sort of the, the, it's the, the space ether. it's the bridge it's yeah the, the fog between a and b yeah even though you know b isn't the answer there's still many more steps yeah. to come yeah, so yeah explain a bit more what you're what, you know what, what you think about that like what is what is it between a and b and what is it you want to try and take a closer look at um it, feel, a, it feels a bit Nietzschean too. Like oh, I'm, I'm asking you to, to stare into the abyss. And oh, what does Nietzsche say when you stare into the abyss? The abyss stares back. Right. So <laughs> it's a little bit. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's daunting, but I'm just curious. It is. Like this is, seems to be what you're interested in. Is oh, for sure. Really trying to understand what happens in yeah. those those moments. It those is. interstitial moments. That's what does exactly. that mean? What's going on there? Do you think? Um, what I, What I often have uh, experienced in a lot of projects, and I bet you most designers have all experienced the same thing, is that as you work through things, you come under the influence of forces that no one anticipated at the beginning and are not always very constructive. And those could be, I think it often comes around to expectations. What wasn't clear when you went into the project was that you have made assumptions as the designer about the client. They've made assumptions about you and what you're going to do, what you're going to deliver and what that's like. And as you get through the project, it becomes clear that, well, those expectations that were very hard to articulate, you didn't even know you had them at the beginning of the project, start to become either satisfied or not, and it comes out through the process. And so ideas that can be, um, like one of the things I find is that a lot of, whenever you design something, certainly whenever I do anything, everything you do is interrelated. But oftentimes clients will say something or a manufacturing reality will say, oh yeah, do you know what, we don't need that, so we won't do that. Well, but without really considering all the impact that might have on all the other elements of the project. Um, and so, and oftentimes we're too far down the road to really accommodate, so you end up with these residual things that aren't really relevant anymore, but have to be there because they've become to be known as part of this design work. Um, if we can dig into some of those expectations and explorations and reveal them through the process, um, I think we have the opportunity to have a more authentic process that results in a more authentic product at the end because you'll be there with fewer compromises. And I know when, I'm, when I've been writing about it and thinking about it, it's like, well, of course you want to try and reveal all these things. Um, but um, uh, it's, it's, um, it's, the, it's the intangibles. Right, And I think one of the things that's pertinent today is that there's so much flux in the workplace um, and it's largely about people. It's not about product-specific things. I had a presentation uh, yesterday that uh, 25 years ago, the, the design work around uh, furniture was all about cable management. That was the focus, right? And then it became all about productivity. These are kind of abstract things that say they're about people but aren't really about people. So you can work away in your studio and you can come up with a great solution to that problem. But today, those aren't the problems. The problems are about people. And how we create something that will satisfy that, I think, is... I'm sure there's expectations that will come up with great solutions for those kinds of things, but without some sort of deeper, having more voices come into the project um, and more exploration of what might this actually result in if we're going to do this rather than that, um, I don't know that we're going to get the right answer. Um, I mean, it, I know the question I'm about to ask can't possibly have a simple answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, Will you know if you found an answer? So let me put it this yeah, way. Yeah, you yeah, brought up good. the word expectation. Yeah. And you're, you're talking a lot about expectation between the people involved. So between right. the, the expectations that clients have on designers 
the expectations that designers have on clients, the expectations that designers have on end users. Yep. We could say the expectations designer or end users have. Sure. Although most end users don't have expectations, they're very sort of single cell amoeba ish. They either like it or they don't. Yeah, they take they don't what they think get. About why and they move on. Um, but still, there's expectations all up and down the food chain here. That's right. Uh, what about your expectations about looking in that void between A and B? The reason I ask is because will you even know if you found a satisfactory answer to this exploration? Everyone likes to yeah, think yeah, that yeah, no, you know, I want to be surprised yeah, that yeah, I can't yeah. know the future. Mm -hmm. But the problem is the future might be written in a language you don't, that's you right. can't read. No, that's what right. do you do with that? That's right. right? So, yeah. yeah, that's my question. Is no, like, that's are you coming? Have you, have you identified some of your own expectations you either want to apply or, or want to delete when you're going down this road? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good, that's a good question. Um, uh, I mean, and one of the obvious things of, of a measure of success is does it sell well, which is kind of, you know, it's kind of crass, but it's, it's and, and binary, but... At least it, it's a metric. Well, it is a metric that's somewhere to start that people have, it's resonated with people at some level and they've bought it, right? So there's a measure of success there. Um, but having said that, I mean, it, and as your you know, sort of kind words about my work in, in, in the past is that we've, we've achieved that without doing this deep, dark look into the abyss, right? Um, I think maybe the difference today is that the marketplace is very different today than it was even just a couple, two or three years ago, right? So um, I think, and you know what, this maybe is another part of it. I mean, I've found that certainly in the last 12 months is that there's, there's a, certainly my experience, I'm not sure this is everyone's experience, but there's been a reticence on the part of manufacturers to make investments in design development because they really don't know what's coming. So they don't want to make a big investment. Well, if you, if you work through a more articulated process at the front end, theoretically, it will protect a little bit of that investment. It's kind of a mitigating action. If you can do a little more research and exploration, your chances of, of working your way through that murky mist has got a much higher chance of success. Right? So, so you just said a word there I want I to jump on. You said articulate. So uh -huh. this is, you know, one could sort of argue in the rhetorical sense of what we're describing that articulate and expectation are related yep. because one should articulate their expectations. Right. But here's a problem that the, the design industry often has. They, are, they, they admit it themselves when they're honest, but it's certainly outsiders like me condemn them constantly for not being able to articulate, right. not being able to talk about like to explain in any direction up and down the food chain, either to the client yeah, yeah, or down, yeah, yeah. The, down the path, what's going on in their, either yep. in their head or what they're trying to do. Yep. Um, designers are not the best communicators, ironically. Ironically enough, yeah, yeah, yeah right. Um, which is why you see so many mission statements on websites that are just catchphrases saying the most... Meaningless things. Exactly. Uh, so articulate is an interesting thing I want to zero mm -hmm. in on for a minute. Is Are, are you... Are you sort of looking at this as like, okay, how can we figure out how to explain in ways that the different, um, let's say like different actors up and down the, the chain understand what we're trying to do and also help teach them how to, how to articulate what they want so that we, everything's on the table and we all understand the yeah. language we're speaking. Yeah. Is that part of, part I, of what you're trying I think to absolutely do? it is, yeah. So let's first yeah. look at the client-designer relationship. What's okay. missing in that, in the expectations and the articulation of expectations that you found in your career up until now between client and designer? What, what drives you crazier? What do you think, okay, this needs to be dealt with? I, I find that, um, uh, more, com more common than I would have expected is that uh, maybe, a, maybe it's just it's naive to have not expected this, but, but a client will have an expectation of what a designer is. And more often than not, that's not the way I see myself or my role in the organization, uh, in the project, the initiative, whatever it is that we're doing. Um, and presumably that's, as, as you say, because I haven't clearly articulated that. Um, but sometimes it's... Uh, uh, it, it is, it's about communication and it's about that um, understanding of what it is you're going to do and, and how and why um, and then what benefit, 
how is that most effective within the organization? So I just wanted to, to jump a little bit on, as I said, I'm a very pragmatic person. So when I think about this and I think about this, this relationship and, you know, I'm, I'm not, back to my wife, relationship management is not a strong suit of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, what, what I have tended to think is uh, to, to, to build on... Um, a process I've I've seen with uh, I worked on an architecture project I worked on the master planning of um, of Queens Park the grounds the external grounds with a landscape architecture firm a few years ago, and one of the things that in their natural process they do a phase called a, a schematic design phase, and they said we'll just go and do your schematic design and in industrial design that's like I just didn't know what what do you mean a schematic design phase, and what was fascinating was a schematic design phase is kind of a pre-design phase. You're not getting into any concepts, but you're exploring all the potential repercussions and the points of contact the product will have with all these different things. And you're kind of getting a, um, a, a you're, you're, you're plotting out what those relationships and points of contact are, what the implications might be. Um, and it was, it was a bit of a revelation to me. And so what I'm thinking is that if just for just pragmatic argument's sake, at the beginning of a project, instead of going away and designing some concepts and coming in with this big ta-da, isn't this wonderful, is to develop a series of concepts with very specific optimizations, like for instance, the marketing optimization. This is the sexy looking new thing. Another one that's the manufacturing optimization, another one that's sustainability. Specifically articulate and isolate a single variable and develop some concepts around that because it'll manifest certain expectations from that group of people that eventually, as you say, you, you could get on the table and you'd get a very clear idea of who's valuing what and this is theoretically you'll get a very good idea of who's valuing what, what the implications might be of going one direction or another and then from there you can um, have a much clearer, more confident idea of where you're going and where the opportunities for improvement might be, where the opportunities for problems might be. Um, and I think the process, as you come back, it is very much about process. It's about adjusting the process and these expectations around it. And I think this could be a mechanism that could tease some of those things out before we get too far down the road. I think I've heard you say in the past how, again, looking at the uh, client-designer relationship, if we look at sort of like that's, if not the first domino to fall, it's certainly pretty close to the front of the line, where that client-designer relationship often the client in essence expects some kind of alchemy out of the yes, yes. designer that's right kind of like you know behind like the wizard of oz yeah 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 attention of the man behind the curtain yeah. and yet what's interesting i've found is that a lot of designers like that oh for sure i know it is it's and it's it's kind of what like like being behind the veil for sure yeah yeah there is there is that um but you're but you're talking about peeling back peeling it back yeah 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 because and, and, and it's funny because it is you're absolutely right, and I think it's, it might be part of the wrestle between the, there is, I mean, designers aren't artists, but there's, but there's, oh. <laughs> okay. right, right, designers are not artists, um, but there is well, definitely, I disagree with you, <laughs> but it's fine, we can have a discussion about that, um, but there is an inherently creative component to design, and that's the alchemy part, and you kind of need to do that, you know, in your way, but for me, and for a lot of others, I think, is you've got to do heads down quiet, you've got to disappear for a while, and let all that coalesce in your head that comes about, and I think the process I'm talking about ideally puts more in your head to stew on while you go away and you know, to perform your alchemy, right? So, so here's what I here's what I see bugging some of probably our listeners. Yeah. Uh, with, you know, I mean, they're not, they can't possibly have a problem with saying that designers aren't artists because it's true. Yeah. I agree, they're not fundamental. I mean, there's artists in the designer, sure. but what's what I find interesting this is why I think some of them might grate a little bit mm-hmm. uh, at what you're saying because if you peel back the veil, right? If you do look behind the curtain, uh, and the magic is exposed, then suddenly it's not magic anymore. It's science. If you theoretically show yeah, yeah, yeah. how that, everything goes that together. That is the risk. That's the risk. Yeah. And science should be replicatable. Right. Except magic is not. No, that's Sometimes right. it happens. Sometimes it doesn't. Good yeah. designers, it could be said, uh, the, you know, they, they, they have a juicy artistic process that is just constantly sure. flowing with new ideas. But if you yeah. ask them to, to show 
in a flow chart how they yeah. come from zero yeah. to a hundred in terms of the idea speedometer mm-hmm. and exactly every step along the way they'll say i can't possibly you do can't it, do it. Depend- no. i might be on the beach one day and get inspired you yeah. know i might be reading a book i might be going through a trade show who knows how to replicate these things right so this is my point if you yep. now say it's no longer magic i'm showing you how the gears work yeah uh the client can say great because now i know how <laughs> to right. yes, yes. plan and expect yeah. and this goes back to your word about expectations true yeah how i can expect yep. value from you right is that still a good thing well i think that is I could, and, and as I've been stewing on this over a while, since the conversation we've had over a while, that that has come out that there's a potential you could view it that way. But I think that's not really what I'm getting at. I mean, it, it's never going to be a formulaic process that A plus B equals C every time, right? It's never going to be the case. I'm, I'm reminded of um, what uh, Okisato from Nendo, I heard him say once, that one of the best things to do when you're in the middle of the design process is forget it and you walk out and you go for a walk. And while you're out from the walk, your stuff's churning in the background and those connections get made and then it becomes something that you can then manifest into right. something, right? So I what I, I heard you say once too, that another, sorry to jump no. in, but another great analogy is when you're struggling with a problem, put a second problem on. Put a second on problem it. on, that's right, yeah. And put the first one on the back burner right. and it, it stews away, right? I think the process that I'm trying to get at is putting more in the soup before it goes into that back of your head process. And I think that's what—that's kind of what I'm thinking is—is is would point the juggernaut in a better direction because you're, you're always going to need. I mean, the, the, that's kind of the thing is that you could put any designer in that process, and the information that comes in can always be the same. But designer A is going to come up with a very different solution than designer B, and that's kind of what you get paid for, right? That's the—I mean—that's our trade, right? That's what we're good at. Um, but there is, there is, because design isn't art, it's. Um, it, it has to respond to a much higher degree of complexity. It exists in a context that is just a lot more complex because of all these points of contact. Um, what I'm hoping is that before we dive into that little abyss where, where we have to stew on things, and that's where the creative work happens, that creativity is a little more informed and articulated, you know? before we get into it. So, so you're not wrong in saying that there's peril in what I've just described, but I think what I'd like to do is to, is to articulate that a little bit and say there is this pre-work, but then which um, will just better inform the creative work. That's really what it is. That's the bottom line, I think. Right. I mean, bottom line's an interesting way to put it because bottom line is a business term. Yeah, that's right. And there is a business element, obviously, sure. in design. And so, I mean, it kind of leads to my next question or my next topic of, of questioning which is and you alluded to it earlier where there's there's different voices around the table right there's the client the designer the marketing the manufacturing yeah. for now let's not say the end user but I don't know maybe you do put them mm-hmm. around the table um, cast as wide a net as possible sure. could lead yep. to clarity what I find interesting this is this kind of leads to the business side of my questioning which is if you put all those people around the table, who's calling the shots? Yeah. I mean, it's great to everyone be talking because the more you talk, the more you develop a common language and theoretically the more you understand each other. So that could, that could uh, help clear up the fog of misunderstanding between the sure. different actors, between client, designer, marketing, whatever. Everyone sort of knows what to expect, back to that word expectations. But I just, I, I always keep asking this question because in a business, someone has to mm-hmm. sign the checks, right? Someone yeah. has to call the shot. Yeah. Who do you think calls the shot in this case? I think... Um, or do they at all? Like, well, no, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I mean I, I'm always keen to uh, look to the, 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 the product of the work that I do needs to be viable. And it's not just viable from a manufacturing perspective, it's a fiscal perspective. It's all of these kind of, it needs to be realistic and viable, right? Um, but I also think, I mean, maybe this is what you're poking at, is that, that design, good design doesn't happen in a democracy, right? At, at, the, at the end of the day, someone needs to make a call. And I think the, 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 the difficulty is that it also doesn't happen in a vacuum. And I think that's the point of this pre-work I'm talking about, is to, is to put more more detail around that vacuum so that when it comes to make a decision you're more informed to do it 
And that, of course, has to be done in collaboration with the person writing the check, right? So some clients that I've got, they just say, you guys just need, you just need to make the decision and we'll go with it. And so we're empowered to do that. Others will just keep us at arm's length and don't want us to be involved in that decision-making process at all. Um, and I think that's part of what I'm trying to get at a little bit is that if you can get into this a more articulated front end of all of the, the aspects and elements surrounding a project, you then have something to evaluate the stuff that comes out of that void in the middle and all the creative work. To say, is this really going to satisfy what we're aiming to do? To help give those making the decision a little more, um, uh, give them tools to make a better decision. I mean, that's sometimes what we do too. When I'm developing a series of concepts, quite often I'm quite careful to, to try and develop a concept and then couple that with an analysis of that concept with simply pros and cons or is it what are the trade-offs here so that when someone makes a decision that it's actually it's, it's an informed decision rather than well I really like that one I don't know why but I like it and we'll go that way without really looking at all the implications of it so if we can get this better idea of the the variables up front then you can make better decisions at the back end so I think it's you know like all these things it's complex it's always going to be case specific, um, but um, I, I, that's kind of where I'm thinking at the moment. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I bring up the issue of who calls the shots because someone's got to yeah. call the shots. Someone's got to lead the train, and often the you know the designer is looked to to be the one to do that, mm -hmm. and then you know they take the flack if it's a yeah. failure. Uh, they are supposed to spread around the glory of yes, the success. success. Yeah. Yeah. They don't get to, you know, mm -hmm. take the success. They definitely take the bullet if it's a failure. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, a lot of what we're talking about kind of, to me, brings up a, a, a word that carries a weird level of uh, weight on its own, the idea of authorship. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to ask you these, you know, a few questions. I'm curious where, where, you're, where you land on this issue because, like, a lot of what you're talking about sound so you know the, the whole step back you know examine the process everyone uh, come to an understanding all those things you're describing sound great yeah but not yeah, everyone sure. is as informed as everyone else That's and right. to expect everyone to get to the same level is a big ask sure it is I think yeah you're right <clears throat> so again someone has to sort of say this is our this is the standard we're meeting this standard right. you're either I don't want to make it binary and say you're, you know, the classic line, you're either with us or you're against us. It doesn't have to be like that. No, no. But it's basically like, we'll, we'll get to it. Mm -hmm. We'll get to this standard because this is the standard yep. we've set out for ourselves. And it sounds, again, like the designers are the ones that do that. The designers mm -hmm. are the ones that yep. say, this is, this is what we're, we're, we're trying to achieve. So the reason I bring up authorship is because w along with authorship, and this goes to what I said a minute ago, right, about taking the bullet. Yep. It, another way to, to put it is, who's responsible? Right, so this goes to my, it's, right. a, it's the flip side of the coin of the who calls the shot, because yeah. who calls the shot's responsible right. for calling the shot. If the designer, this, uh, you know, the, the language, I'm throwing a lot of words out here, and a lot yeah. of them are synonyms, right? I could say authorship, well, another way of saying authorship is who takes responsibility. It feels to me like what you're saying is, uh, and I don't want to put words in your, in your mouth, mm -hmm. but it seems to me like you're saying, okay, the designers typically always take responsibility, let's try to spread out the responsibility mm. so that everyone right. has a little more skin in the game and right. they can't go hide behind uh -huh. I didn't it wasn't my call right. when things go sour mm -hmm. am I how far am I closer no, far I off the mark in that no I think so I think I mean there's a lot I think you, you said a lot in those I did say and, a lot in that because <laughs> basically what I'm trying yeah. to ask you is who's responsible well, I it think feels like I think everybody should be should take responsibility for sure. is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think you're right, but I I think this may be one of the expectations is that I wonder if I mean one of the things that drives me nuts is when I talk to someone that I'm meeting just on a social basis and they find out I'm a product designer and they say, "Oh yeah, who designed that thing?" and then who designed that thing? It's terrible, right? Because everyone's got things in their lives that are terrible and they always blame the designer. Well, I would almost put money on it that nine times out of ten, it wasn't the designer's fault that it's like that. There are other people in the mechanism, in the organization, in that chain that you talk about, the A, B, C, D, down the line, cost cutting, manufacturing, supply chain problems, whatever it is, cost, that the product ends up being less than optimal. 
and less than what the design. I've had loads of projects that go that way mm. because you're left out of the process. So, so I, I, I kind of take real issue with that. Don't blame the designer because we're, we're not responsible for everything. You know, oftentimes we're, we're, we're asked to, particularly in a design project where it's a fee-for-service, you get paid for a specific scope of work and then you're out of the process and then the manufacturer takes through the end. Whether it lives or dies, your name may or may not be on it, but you have very little role in, in its success and in some technical marketing ways or whatever. So I think your question may come around with, well, what do you mean by the role of design in the grand scheme of launching a product, right? Some would say it's the big thing. Others would say, well, you're just a cog in the machine, right? And it probably depends on the manufacturer because sometimes you, uh, we've got, I've got clients that that um, that you're a really big part of the whole thing, um, and others where you're not so much. And I've never had any project where it's been so much that if uh, if it, that you're if there's a real problem, it lands on your door. One of the problems with that, just on a very pragmatic basis, is industrial design, certainly in, in Canada, is not a regulated industry, and you can't get errors in emission insurance. It's just no insurance company will insure you to do that. So you have to be very careful in your engagement with a, with a manufacturer to see how liable can you actually be. It's just not reasonable, and most manufacturers understand that, and that becomes part of the agreement. So it kind of it isolates you in a, in a legal sense from being technically responsible for certain things, at least to a degree, to a degree. Um, so it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of murky. I mean, you said something there that, that really caught my ear. And I mean, I might, I might be off base or I might not be understanding, but like you said something there about how, you know, some, in, in some relationships, you know, especially with the client, the designer is just, you know, a smaller medium cog mm. in a series of other small and medium cogs. Right. And the client's really driving the sure. wagon train in that case. Yep. Uh, while that might bristle designers who like their voice yep. to be the dominant voice, on the flip side, that's almost, uh, that, I could see that being a bit of a relief. It's like, sure. oh, now, yeah. I know, now I know where I stand yeah. and, and who I'm standing with. Yep. Now yep. I know my dance partner, we know the moves. Um, but you know, the reason I bring that up is because like, we started off this conversation talking about unpacking the, 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 in a previous conversation you called it the liminal space, and I yeah. really love that word, uh, between A and B, yeah. The, the, yeah. The, the, the liminal space between those. Mm -hmm. If you're a small cog, hmm. a smallish cog, yeah. and the client's really driving things, you don't really A, need, or B, even have the uh, uh, sort of the latitude to explore that liminal space between A and B. It's limited. Because the client's very clear about what your purpose is. That's right. So it sounds like what you're describing in terms of wine with Fletcher Scott to ex examine that space is in the situations where you have been asked to perform alchemy. Yeah. This goes back to what yep. we were saying earlier. Yeah. You, and, you know, sometimes those are great relationships, and, mm -hmm. but they still, it's worth taking a closer look at. For, for sure, yeah. So am I, does that sound like where, like what I'm saying sounds, or I think sounds so. like it makes sense? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, so there's, I a, there's a kind of relationship you want to take a closer look at. Yes. Other ones yeah. are just, so just transactional yeah exactly right and, Perfect. That, and that's, that's cool right to and that's totally fine right and but i mean i think uh, to to any degree that the reason a designer is going to get hired is because a client wants to give it something that they can't in a in a mechanical sense right there's always that kind of little bit of a new perspective that often you just get hired for a few hours to inject something new into the process and thank you very much for your ideas and you move on and that's fine and that, 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 that happens. Um, but it still is, it would be improved by an exploration of, well, what do you really want? You know, you talked about the, 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 the terms of that relationship are, are set in certain, um, in certain conditions. And, I, yeah, and that's maybe one of the expectations. The expectation is that that relationship's set. But any designer that's been given a problem that has no shape and your job is to give it shape, you got to think, well, okay, well, what are the what's the context I'm trying to give it shape within, right? So that it's meaningful, even on a small scale, um, where you're the the gun for hire, to use a bit of a, a, a phrase, um, it would still benefit a lot more from some of that um, front end work. Right. Yeah, I mean, continuing on that on this train of thought, where we're talking about the liminal space between 
the points and, and looking at that and connecting this back to what we were saying earlier about or talking about earlier about authorship you know the responsibility side of things is one thing but to me there's also a level of not that responsibility means I'm the one who has to take the blame if it goes bad but it's just more like it sounds like there's a need for stronger voices not right. not bullying voices not yep. like yep. you know oppressive voices but just a stronger voice because you can't have a debate with a bunch of that's right. committee members all yeah, yeah, saying yeah. well what do you think well that's what right. do you think well no you need you need someone with an opinion yeah and a good debate needs strong voices people yep. who have opinions that's right and good usually good I almost said gooder and I would have had to hand in my, my <laughs> writing badge. Usually better outcomes uh, are the result of strong voices. Yes, that's debating. true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the bit of the, the dichotomy is, I mean, I'm not sure if I said in this conversation just now or before, but, you know, good design doesn't happen in a democracy, but right. it doesn't happen in a vacuum either. Right. And, and both of those are, they're kind of two sides of two extremes of a, of a, of a continuum. And you, as a designer, you need to hold them both together because you can't... Um, I think that's one of the points of difference with an artist. An artist is very clearly the author of what it is and, and that's their role. Whereas a designer quite often is, is trying to pull things together and draw as much input in and then create a meaningful solution from that. Um, I, I have a friend who's an architect and he used to talk about the... Um, the very curious role he would find himself in on a regular basis when he was on a, a project planning um, meeting and there'd be you know, 10, 12 people around a room and um, all representing all different disciplines and the trades and the, the standards and whatever else is. And when a question came out to do something, even though it wasn't an architectural thing, everybody looked at him. It's like, why, why are you looking at me? Well, it's because an architect's role often is to take all of those and create a, a a coalesced, cohesive, you know, proposal that, that unites them all. And I think that's kind of what we need to do more of as product designers is to, is to, is to work in that role. Um, so how you balance that with, am I the author of it all? That's, that's something that I have, it's, it's, I, it's a wrestle. But I think some of these, you know, they're like dialectics, right? They're two opposing things that are opposites, but both true at the same time. You need to hold them. Together, and I think that's part of the magic. That's is, is how. Well, how do you do that? When you when you do that with all these things going on, what's the what's the result of it? Right. That that's where this things really interesting things can happen. Right. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things I love about uh, talking about and, and being critical about design, and you know, engaging with with the people who are doing what I think is really interesting stuff is getting into a conversation where. It's, you know, it's like we already acknowledge that, uh, you know, the purpose of design is to make things better. So we already acknowledge that everyone around the table ha has, this sounds so goofy, but has goodness in their heart. They want to, right, they right. want to yeah. do good stuff. Yeah. But then you can pick examples all, all up and down the historical timeline of a product that, while doesn't do harm some designer or group of designers got behind it, thought they were revolutionizing, making life better, and they made a product. Then over time, it's like, wow, we really just overbaked that one, didn't we? Mm -hmm. And I, you, I remember talking with you earlier about the task chair example. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's for for, for you know benefit of our readers, <laughs> this story is hilarious. Why don't you tell that story? Because <laughs> this goes to the point of, of to what I'm saying that. Without giving away the punchline, yes, yeah, uh, you know, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll let you tell the story. But uh, before the product came out, they probably thought we've hit a home run. Mm. We've done a designer's duty. We've right. made something great. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, tell the story. Tell okay, the story. All right. I don't want to right. give I mean, away too much. Interestingly, it came about from a, a, an exploration to sustainability, and, and that's a big part of what I'm trying to work and. And it was how, how I, 
believe that, you know, beyond just swapping one material out for another, the, the, the product's composition can play a much larger role in creating something that has a potential to be a functioning member of a circular economy. And the task chair, I think, is a really good example because it used to be, I was at 10 years ago or something, I remember people saying that the $1,000 task chair was dead. Or, and, uh, but before that, you'd get these big task chairs that have your elaborate mechanisms and adjustments for this, that, and the other thing. And there were super ergonomic and very you know, robust in their functionality and all the rest of it. And I think over time, a number of people studied uh, the usability of these things and how often they were adjusted and how often they were used. And I, mean, I remember hearing one study that, that chairs and offices were used about 60% of the time and almost nobody used any of the adjustment features. So, so companies were paying all of this money for a chair that wasn't used that often and, and was never adjusted. It was never really used in the way that it was intended. And so, I mean, now you look around at these very, very light um, and lower featured chairs that are used in offices. And not only do they, are they a lot less expensive to make, they're a lot simpler, they're a lot more intuitive, there aren't adjustment points on them anymore. I mean, I think we've all sat down at a boardroom table and leant back and gone way back and nearly fallen off our chairs because the tension was too low on the chair, right? That, that doesn't happen as often these days because there's no adjustment. Um, and I think it's, uh, it, it, it opens the door to sustainability because they're just simpler products. There will always be these very highly featured task chairs, I think. Um, because for people that are sitting for long periods of time in a chair, they need that kind of support, and they'll take advantage of all those features. But they're not for everybody, and that's one of the recognitions that I think has happened, and it comes back to that composition. A composition of a product that's much lower featured can be much more appropriate and just much better. You have better sculptural opportunities. You have better material usage opportunities, and it, and, and it just becomes less expensive, more functional, more desirable, just a better kind of product. Yeah. So. Like, no one's ever going to disagree with the adage, less is more. Right. But what I always thought is I would love to be a fly in a boardroom if one day a client comes to a designer and says, we want something, whatever. We want yeah. X. We want a new chair. Mm -hmm. And that designer said, why? Mm -hmm. You don't need it. Mm -hmm. Well, no one's going to make money off of that conversation. Designer's oh, not going to make money for no. not designing something. No. Client's not going to make any money for not making something. Yeah, true. I, but I could see the clients, you know head exploding if they were told by the designer no i don't know that i don't i mean i think that um the the real point of that i think would be to say you don't need that you need this right you don't need what you're to think you're asking for and and it's always and i can remember i worked at technion for many years and one of the things we would often do there is to try and dig behind the ask we're being asked for this well hang on a second what's this solving so maybe if you dig into that problem, this isn't what you need. You actually need something else. So we're still going to design something for you, but it's not what you first thought. And okay, so I, right there, I was right hoping. There. I was, no, no, I was hoping you were going to say that because I'm <laughs> okay. going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nail you on this because yeah. what you just did was take a position. You sure. said you don't need this. Yes. But you do need that. Right. Right. So yeah. instead of just saying you don't need anything. Oh, you'd never say that. Learn no. to sit on the floor. If, right. You know, like, no. How? Are, no. You say you don't need that. Mm -hmm. You don't need your what you're asking. What you do need is this, you're, yeah. what you're not asking for. So that, that's a, a, a voice of authority. Sure. And I, would, I, I love that. I love mm -hmm. hearing that that's how something happened. And what sure. worries me, and this is a, a somewhat convoluted and sneaky way to get back to something you <laughs> yeah. said earlier about yeah. offices in flux right. these days. And you're absolutely right. Like No one knows. No one knows what to do because no one wants to make a call that could be a bad call because it seems like all the margins are, are oh, razor yeah. thin. Yep. You said it yourself. Yep. Manufacturers don't want to invest uh, money they don't have or don't want to lose in a bad call. So they're all kind of waiting to say, who, who's going to do it? Yeah, <laughs> and then right. how do I learn from their mistake? Right. Yeah. It's, but it's, it's, the, it, you know, it's been written in a, a thousand Paul Arden style books of uh, platitudes of the first person through the wall is always the, the bloodiest. That's right. No one wants to be first through the wall. They just want to watch how that person got bloody. Mm -hmm. Someone needs, uh, and that drives me crazy, especially now in the mm -hmm. conversation I'm yeah. hearing now, yeah. going right back to how I started this whole conversation with you about I'm waist deep in trying to figure out this hybrid work yep. narrative where no one knows it. it. It sounds like the answer is let's give them everything. Right. Well, you, how could, that makes no sense to me. Like that's, right. that's basically yeah. saying that's not, that's, that's, that's avoiding the question. Yeah, is what it is. exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. not taking a position. That's right. And does, 
you need to take a position. You need to take point. a position. Yeah, you do. You do need to take a position. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the funny things that I often find whenever I'm beginning any project or I'm, I'm considering looking for new things or where do I want to go, you know, I work in, in office furniture and let's face it, office furniture is a chair to sit on, it's a surface to work at and it's maybe a little space division. That's kind of it, right? You've got horizontal planes, you've got vertical planes and you've got something to sit on. Everything else is variations of that, right? So what's the, what's the meaningful combination and, and, and format of those things. Um, and I often find that what's, what's really, I, I, it gets me out of bed, is that when you're developing those things for a specific manufacturer, it's great because that manufacturer has a series of competencies. So you've got to translate those requirements through the lens of their competencies. And, um, and that's really compelling because it's a challenge. For for the fun of it, I'm going to say, because you, you threw a line at me that I'm, made me think this is a great follow-up on. You said, what gets you out of bed? Yeah. Right? You just yeah, said, yeah. what gets you out of bed? Yep. Let me ask you this. What keeps you up at night? Oh, geez, same thing. The same thing that gets you out of bed <laughs> is what keeps you up at night? So you, you <laughs> no, have no sleep. It's not. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's not. But it's, I mean, we're, yeah. we're joking, but yes, I'm actually yeah. kind of serious. No. Like moving, looking down the road through the fog of... Yeah. The ridiculousness of the time in which we find ourselves. Yeah. It's licking our wounds from the time we just came out of, yeah. meaning the last yeah. couple of years. What? I'm not going to ask you what you see because no, no, no. you're not clairvoyant. But I'm just what? What do you? What scares you? Like, what, how do you think it could all go wrong? And I'm not talking <laughs> I, geopolitical politics. No, 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 I'm just no, no, saying, I understand. Like, no, I the understand. office is in such. You use the word yeah. flux. I'm just going to yeah. keep using that yeah. word. It's yeah. in such a state of flux. It is. It feels like it could go bad. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I think. I'm not, I'm not gonna You're not you. going to share I'm your opinion you. on this? No, this, okay. is, this is not me being interviewed, it's you being interviewed. All right. Um, well, I, it's interesting because I, I kind of, I've got two answers for you on what keeps me up at night. Is that, to, to be honest, the thing that often stresses me more than anything else is the business relationship with, with clients. How, how do I translate this kind of work into something where I can pay my mortgage and put food on the table, right? Because right. it's, it's, it's nebulous. It's like, how do you... Yeah, I don't know. I can't necessarily put an hourly rate and start the clock. No one's going to go for that. Right. Um, I've often worked with royalties, but I've got a number of uh, enough projects that earned royalties and never sold, and we never off basically got paid uh, to have learned enough tuition on that as well. So, so how do you structure something so that it's of it's a reasonable investment on a client's perspective, and I can get paid in doing this kind of thing. Um, that keeps me up at night. Um, and with regard to the way the office is going to go, I, I, I have this, um, uh, you know, people, one, one of the things I noticed at the beginning of COVID um, was everyone saying it's all in flux, it's all go and it's in flux, right? Everything's just, it's all going crazy. What are we going to do? And what I noticed was, and this may counteract some of the things that I've said so far, is that there was a lot of change coming in corporate workspaces with regard to residential look and feel and sort of no fixed address workstations. Um, that was happening already. You know, private offices were never an individual's office. They were becoming more and more shared by everybody. So that inherently changes the kind of furniture that will support that kind of work, right? And that's accelerated through COVID. Um, but what I find interesting about the residential piece is that usually that has been, you know, it's curtains, it's fabrics, it's softer woods, it's sort of those material things, right? But I think if you dig a little bit deeper, one of the things you see about residential furniture is it's very eclectic. You find a chair in a junk shop you really liked and, and your, your sofa is a, is, is a place to relax and watch TV one night. It's a spare bed for a guest another night. It's a place for hanging out and having family get-togethers and stuff, right? So there's an inherent fluidity to how these things get used. Um, and I think that's what's missing from, maybe not what's missing, but that's what's evolving in, in office spaces is to create these kinds of spaces. So, so I think the way that offices used to be, I think, is never really going to be like that en masse. Um, and uh, to be honest, I'm quite excited about what it will be because it's a good challenge. And I think these elements will come into it in, because people are going to use them differently. And I mean, I'm, a I'm, I mean, I'm getting on in years a little bit, not that I'm old, but I'm certainly designing things for people who are a lot younger than me. And the way that they live their lives is, 
in, in a lot of ways foreign to me in some ways um, in a digital sense right there isn't the need for the things there isn't the need for a sense of place in the way that I've often found those needs for those things and I think there is a generational aspect to that yeah. um, uh, so, so I think the office will serve a great purpose it's just a different one yeah what, what you just said a second ago I think is, is really interesting it's almost a whole other conversation but I'll use it as a way to sort of wrap this up uh, it sort of brings it brings me to a question I was noodling for a while leading up to our conversation and I was I wasn't sure if I should I wasn't sure if I should ask it like, I wasn't even sure how I felt about this question but I'm gonna ask it anyway okay mainly because you just kind of led yeah. me to it because right. you said you said something I think very honest and very nice very you know like you know uh, in, a, in a sort of moment of Dostoevsky-ish self-reflection, which not everyone has the, the, the humility to do. Uh, you said that, you know, you're, you're, I'll try to be nice in my choice of words, but you're getting on yes, in I'm your mature. career. Yeah, right, yeah, you're mature. Sure. Uh, which puts you in an interesting place. And the reason that was a, I fumbled trying to lead up to my question is because what I've, what we've been talking about and what I've been reading about what you've been writing, I, I can't help it. It sounds like the birth of a manifesto, or at least in <laughs> yeah. the yeah, yeah, in the embryonic yeah. stage. Right? Is is some of this kind of you've and like so? Let's take a step back for a second. You know, most people understand like a man. I'm not talking like a political manifesto. No, I'm no, talking no, like no. a designer's yeah, manifesto. Sure. The best ones tend to happen later in a designer's yeah, career. That's right. When they've had a chance to reflect, look back, and say, "This is what I've learned." The good ones, the really good ones have always been writing one along the way and yeah. just been tweaking it as things right. went by. But the one that they eventually put out to the public, uh, let's call it like the outward facing one, uh, usually comes later in their career. Mm -hmm. And it usually has t a couple main points to it. Uh, what they see is what's wrong with yeah. the industry. Mm -hmm. uh, and if not tangible solutions, at least thoughts about right. what can be done about it. Yeah. And it feels like, in a way, that's kind of what you're doing now with Fletcher Scott. Is like mm -hmm. you're like, okay, I've learned all this from Fig Forty, and yep. still loving it, and still yep. doing that. But now it's and and Fig Forty, you know, I should tell our listeners has a manifesto on its website. It does. Yes, it does. Uh, Forty things. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> it feels like you're 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 you got a, some some new clay. You're molding mm -hmm. manifesto mm -hmm. out with. Fletcher Scott. Is it, I am I close to that? With I, this? I think you are. I mean, that wasn't necessarily a conscious choice, but I think it's always. I mean, I always, and I'm always guilty of overthinking things. And I think it's because I'm I'm fascinated with why the things around us come to be, right? So I'm fascinated by. It's kind of why I do what I do. Um, and I think you're right. I think there are a set of. Because I also think there's there's things to pass on, you know. That there's there's things that I, I I do teach. I teach at Sheridan College, and I love doing that and working with with young students. Um, so I could definitely see some of that, and and I think not in some way that it's like it's not like I've got all of this knowledge to bestow on the world, not in any way at all. But if if there's a way to facilitate a bit of conversation to try and reveal a few things. And I think that's kind of where I'm getting at right from the beginning of this whole new kind of approach to work. I could see the same thing as if you can approach things a little differently, maybe adjust some expectations, have some different conversations. I think everything gets just that, has the potential to get that a little bit better. Right. You know? And I'm also, I'm, I'm becoming very increasingly committed to, you know, you were talking about all those earlier on about getting all the players around the table to make sure everyone's involved. And I think the planet needs to be there too. It's a bit of a cliche, I know, but, but without really understanding the, 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 the role of what we're doing with regard to the impact of the life systems that we all live with in, and how does that impact and be impacted by what we're doing, it needs to be part of the whole process at the front end. Um, and so how you balance all those voices is, uh, yeah, it definitely holds the potential to be a manifesto of sorts. If it, you know, I suppose my, it'll achieve some distilled clarity at some point in the next little while, presumably. What I think would be great is to see if uh, like some kind of a, a, 
publishable manifesto, so to okay. speak, like the written yeah. word comes out, yeah. but also see if the manifesto comes to life in an actual product. I know. that's That would be wonderful. So maybe that's the next step. Somewhere that's, down the line, yeah, yeah. we reconvene and I say, okay, <laughs> okay I've, I've got that's you right, on yes. <laughs> record saying blah, blah, blah. That's right. That would be awesome. That would be great. You I'd say, love okay, to do that. Okay, this is what we're doing with Fletcher Scott. Let's, uh, although it, it can't do it as an audio. We need a some kind of a video thing video so thing. can point to the object yes, exactly. and say, this is how it meets the manifesto. This is how but it plays I, out. I love to be able to do that. Yeah. I love to be able to put a designer beside their product and say, explain this. Defend it. Explain Defend yourself. It. Defend it. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, let's no, do that. I think let's come great. back to that. I think that would be fantastic. All right, Lee, mm -hmm. this has been a lot of fun. Uh, and it'll be great to see, uh, to start to see what Fletcher Scott comes out with. Also, I'll more stuff Fig 40 is yep. doing. Yep. So, uh, yeah, it's always, like I said, I've been a fan for a long time and let the fire truck go by. <laughs> and uh, yeah, let's, let's pick this up again sometime down the road. Well, thanks so much for the invitation. It's been great to have a conversation, chat about this and dig about these things. It's good to sort of focus those thoughts, right? Through a conversation like this, it's been a lot of fun. And sometimes you need an outsider yeah. to push you. That's right. No, this, so I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this very special episode of Bevel. Be sure to check out our other episodes, as well as plenty of other great content at Canadian Interiors by visiting canadianinteriors.com, where you can find our social media links and how to subscribe to the magazine. And of course, we encourage you to share Bevel with your networks. This is Peter Sobchak, and until next time, design listeners, we encourage you to make it good, make it clear, and make it count.